Vodka. 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 Hey everyone, it's Amber Love, and I just wanted to give you a little uh, preamble here about the audio. I was experiencing a lot of problems during this recording, just a little bit of overcast skies, and suddenly Skype and Comcast can't possibly get along. So I had uh, quite a bit of crackling, static problems, and echo problems, especially near the end of the episode. So in fact, what I needed to do was cut off a little bit of the end, and just, um, I will fill you in on what what was, that was just the closing remarks, and I wanted to share uh, Angela Henry's links. So um, you can just go to her website, AngelaHenry.com, and it has links to her Twitter and Facebook and, and other social media accounts and things. So that is the best way to find her. And, um, you know, don't forget that you can follow me at Elizabeth Amber on Twitter. Now, here's the recording. Hey, everyone. It's Amber Lovin. You're listening to Vodka O'Clock at AmberUnmasked.com. And uh, don't forget that you can now sponsor the show and the website. Go to Patreon.com slash AmberUnmasked. And you can pledge as little as $1 per creation, which um, basically means a dollar per week. And for the first time... I am so excited. I get to talk to mystery writer Angela Henry. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. This is the first podcast interview I've ever done, so I'm really excited. Oh, this is so great. Um, I discovered Angela and her work through Wattpad, even though I haven't had the chance to actually read through any of the work yet, because I'm really new to Wattpad and I don't know my way around. So um, it was Angela and I were talking before I started uh, recording the show, and and I was telling her that I kept coming across how it just seemed like it was a bunch of teenagers writing, which I find great, and I encourage that completely. But I I was so excited to see her her profile and see that she has like all these published books. So now I'm here and I get to talk to a mystery writer. This is great. Thank you. So what's your background? Where are you from? I am from Springfield, Ohio. Um, my background is actually, uh, in the library field. I've worked in the library field for probably 20 plus years. I actually just celebrated my 20th, um, anniversary on the job that I have now. I work at a community college library. Um, thank you. Um, I've been writing probably, I started out with short stories probably in high school and I didn't attempt to write my first novel until I was probably in my late 20s. Um, I wasn't under contract. Um, I had no plan. And it took me four years to to finish it because I just wanted to see if I could do it. So I did eventually end up getting that book published like 10 years later. But, um, yeah, I've been writing for a long time, uh, mostly mystery, suspense, and more recently fantasy. Okay. Well, th- that's great because I I know that there's a lot of crossover, uh, as well with mysteries and thrillers in particular. Mm-hmm. But uh, fantasy is just so hugely popular, and we just lost a, a Sir Terry Pratchett. Yes, I read that. Yeah, yeah, that was a. I haven't read any of his books, but now you know I'm going to have to to read everything that he wrote now. Yeah, I kind of get that the same way. Like I I really didn't know him at all, but I followed his daughter somehow on Twitter. I guess it, you know how it always recommends people that you follow. Right. And I saw, oh, well, all my friends are following this person. I'll follow her too, and I didn't realize who she was. Um and you know, and then I saw the news. I'm like, wow, like everybody talks about this man. 
so he's just uh, very important to the to the book world. Exactly. Yeah. Big loss. Whether you knew him or not, it's just very important. Um, what kind of stuff did you grow up reading that you know got you into enjoying mysteries and fantasy in the first place? Uh, I started out probably with the Trixie Belden books. She was kind of like um, Nancy Drew, um, Agatha Christie, um, just, you know, books along those lines, mysteries, um, cozy mysteries that were set in small English villages and um, Nancy Drew, the Hardy Boys, you know, on up through Scooby-Doo and, you know, just anything where there was a mystery to solve. I wanted to either read it or watch it on TV. So I've always been interested in mysteries. I always thought that was really cool. Um, just the idea of mysteries for kids like Scooby-Doo and Encyclopedia Brown. Yeah, yeah, definitely him, too. <laughs> <laughs> those were great because those were books that I actually could read and finish. I was a terrible reader. So I would I would. Very often, I was talking to um, somebody recently about this, how they don't understand that their kids pick up books and they never finish them. And I was like, oh, I was one of those. I would pick up books all the time because I would think the cover was really cool and I would read, you know, a few pages and I would never finish. Yeah, I was always the kid with her nose in a book. You know, I would rather, you know, go to the library than go out and play. So, you know, I've, yeah. books have always been a very important part of my life. And plus, you know, I, I work in the library field. So, you know, that just shows that I really, really love books. Right. Um, what What was your library studies like? Because I had the privilege. Uh, it was a great job where um, when I was right out of college, I got to temp for three months in a library. And so the head librarian had... Um, had her master's and she was going, you know, it was taking, seemed to be taking her forever to get her PhD because she would stop and she would restart and, um, you know, life really would just get in the way. She couldn't make it to, to class and stuff. So it looked very daunting just seeing her and knowing, you know, knowing her as well as they did that she was driven and successful already, that it was so hard for her. Uh, what was your academic life like? Well, I I actually have a bachelor's degree in English. I do not have a master's in library science. I'm considered what's called a, a library paraprofessional is what they call those of us who don't have the master's degree. Um, I had planned to get a master's degree. It just never worked out. But, um, you know, the people that I know who actually did go through that program, um, you know, they had some some pretty hard classes. I mean, cataloging, you know, you don't really think much about what it takes to put the library books on the shelf. But, you know, the catalogers are the ones that catalog the books and stuff. And that's that's a pretty complicated, complex process. Um, my um, I kind of fell into library work. Um, I always like to read. And I remember um, my high school home ec teacher, you know, back in the day, home ec teachers would do home visits. And um, uh, I remember her coming to my house and telling my mom that she thought that I should be a librarian. And I just thought that I was just so insulted. I mean, because, you know, the image of the librarian with the, you know, the bun and the sensible shoes. And I was just so insulted by that. And, you know, 
fast forward a few years and that's what I've been doing ever since. So oh, it's really no, kind of funny have, how that happened. The sexy library. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's a, I follow some really entertaining librarians on Twitter, like um, wine librarian. Um, they always use, you know, they sort of like code, code their handle. Yeah. Into, now, li- so. now being a librarian is cool. I mean, it wasn't back then. So <laughs> Were your um, so you studied English? Was that it? Um, yeah. Or creative writing and stuff? Um, okay, so you, you got the bug to write short stories. I think most of us kind of have to do short stories in order for teachers to have time to actually grade papers. Um, did you go through things like submitting short stories to magazines? Yeah, I actually um, there's a an African American magazine called Ebony Magazine, and I submitted a, a short story. They had a they used to have an annual writing contest, and uh, I submitted a, a short story. This has probably been oh, 15 years ago, and my story was chosen um, for an honorable mention, and. Um, you know, my name was in the magazine. I think I got like a thousand bucks or something. So that was that was really encouraging for me. But that sounds like yeah. But even that's a really popular man. Yeah. I mean, that's, yeah. I don't know what happened to that contest. They they don't have it anymore. I wish they still did. But that kind of jump started um, my desire to want to get published. Um, and it was still probably several more years after that that I actually did get a book published, but you know, that's, that, that was very validating for me. So that was a, a really cool experience. So then, it, so then it took you four years to go through the, the book process. Right. right. Um, now when you're working, because you also have the day job to contend with and everything, or do you, tend to really focus on one story at a time or do you sort of have a few things going like you know at once um I write best when I can focus on one project at a time I mean I really wish that I was more prolific I know of authors who are churning out new books every six to eight weeks and yeah yeah, that that I, I admire that on one hand on the other hand I'm like you know what kind of quality are you getting you know churning out all those books like that but you know for me personally if I could write two books a year that would be good for me but you know right now I'm kind of at a book a year so I'm I'm trying to you know do more than that but it's kind of hard for me I'm not a fast writer okay yeah I've um uh, I seem to get these weird bursts myself, you know, it's like I'll do really, really well for a week and then I'll not feel motivated <laughs> at all after that. Yeah. Um, being a, I'm kind of a hybrid author right now, meaning I do have some projects that are with a publisher and then the rest of them I'm self-publishing. And the downside that I'm seeing with the self-publishing is I don't have a deadline. So I don't have anyone over me cracking the whip saying, you know, you have to have this done by a certain date. Because, you know, when you sign a book contract, you know, you have dates, you know, written into that contract where you're supposed to deliver the first draft. And when you don't have that, at least for me, um, I get really lazy and I probably don't write the way that I should because 
I don't have that motivation. You know, no one's I'm the same way. Yeah, no one's standing over me, no deadlines or anything. So I'm finding that I really need deadlines. I really need to be accountable because I didn't really realize how that was going to affect my writing until I didn't have it. Yeah. Did you ever um, do NaNoWriMo? You know, I have signed up for that two or three times and have never done it. Okay. <laughs> well, yeah, that was because it was my first time doing that was uh, last year in 2014. And um, the it was the most dedicated I had ever been and the fastest I ever wrote any, you know, that volume of words. So, but it was because of this, you know, I, I wasn't necessarily competing with other people. That's not really what it's right. about. Um, but I felt the deadline. I felt like, Oh, you know, I have to this date, you know, can I do it? And when the first two weeks when I like wasn't hitting the target, it was like, Oh no, I'm just <laughs> not doing this. You know, it's like, oh, there's only 250 words. This is terrible. <laughs> well, you know, I took a fast draft class. Um, there's an author named Candace Havens who offers a um, a fast draft class where you're supposed to have, I think it's like a 50,000 word book by the end of two weeks. Wow. And so that's half the time of Nano Ryan. Yeah, I, I actually did it. Now, the problem with this is what you get at the end is a complete and total mess. Yeah, I would expect. That. And, you know, so I have this book that I wrote and it was actually a romance, the first like straight just complete romance that I've ever written and it's still on my hard drive and I'm hoping to kind of whip it into shape here before too long, but yeah, you you can do it, but, you know, like I said, what you have at the end is just not good so you kind of have to wade through that to salvage what's good okay so is this one of your self-published things that this that you did that quickly um i i can't decide what i'm going to do with that i told my agent when i um finished it you know got a clean first draft i would send it to her um but you know i've i've got so many other things i'm working on i don't know exactly when i'll be able to get to it Okay, so you have, um, like you're saying, you're sort of split between self-publishing and traditional publishing. So is it um, based on the two different series that you have, or is it the, like a third series that you're you're self-publishing? Because I see that you have two distinct series so far. Okay, the first series I have is my Kendra Clayton series. Um, that's my probably the one I'm um, most known for there's five books so far I'm working on a sixth one and I originally had a traditional publisher for that series and after three books they decided that they were going to go in a different direction and they got rid of all of their mystery writers so I was without a contract and that was probably right around the time when self-publishing started really getting big you know people um, were making a lot of money um, mid-list authors, you know, who had been dropped by their publishers and didn't want to stop writing their series, decided to self-publish. So I was one of those authors. And um, my publisher still owned the rights to the first three books. So I couldn't really do much with them. They were kind of out of print. So I just decided to continue on with the series on my own. And then like a year or two ago, the, the rights to the first three books 
finally reverted back to me, so I put those out on the market too. Now I have another book called The Paris Secret, which is published by Karina Press, which is a division of Harlequin. And um, that, so that, that book was by a publisher. And then I wrote a children's fantasy novel that was also by a small digital publisher. Then I have a Xavier, my Xavier Knight series. Um, that first book hasn't come out yet. I actually had to walk away from a contract for that book just like a week ago. It was really kind of disappointing. We couldn't come to terms. So I'm still kind of up in the air about what I'm going to do about that book. But, you know, I like being... I like being a hybrid author. Um, the self-publishing side appeals to my the control freak in me. And then, you know, the traditional publisher, you know, I still like having a traditional publisher, too. So, you know, it, it appeals to both sides of me as a writer. With the self-publishing books, do you hire your own editor to help you out and help you clean up the manuscript at all? Yeah, yeah. Um, I have editors that I work with. Um, and then uh, usually what I'll do for, like, the covers is I'll go on, like, Shutterstock or iStock or, you know, the sites that sell stock photography and, and illustrations and things. And I'll find an image and then I'll find... Um, a designer to turn it into a cover for me. Um, and then that way I have full control over what it looks like because, you know, that's one of the biggest things you give up control of with a traditional publisher is you have to go with what they give you as far as cover art goes. You don't really have much of a say in that. So that's one good thing about self-publishing is you have a say in everything. And then that's also the downside is you have a say in everything. So, yeah, so if it's bad. <laughs> your fault too. <laughs> sometimes but the, sometimes your decisions aren't that great. You kind of have to think like a marketer. So, and that's that's not always easy. It's at at least gotten so much more affordable. Um I've noticed because I found several websites that have like um like you're talking about stock photos and stuff. They actually have stock templates for covers, oh, yeah. you know. So yeah. you, you don't have to be a uh, you know, a great graphic artist, you can do it yourself, but you still have to pay them for the, the template design and, and for the, the photo. Well, you know, stuff. what I've just recently discovered as far as cover design, um, if you go on, I don't know if you're familiar with the site Fiverr. Oh, yeah, I've been through that. Yeah, yeah they're they have some great cover designers on Fiverr for, you know, very affordable prices. So, yeah, I know somebody who who did her book through there. She has an ebook about polyamory, and uh, that's how she did she got her cover made, and it's really great. Yeah. yeah. Um, but a, a friend of mine, Jenny Wood, uh, was in fact uh, she she publishes columns also about the writing process and her experience and everything, and she independently published her book. Uh, a boy like me through 215 Inc. And one of the things that she talks about the most is that control that you're talking about where her book is about a, a transgender character. And so she was really worried about the marketing. She's like, are they going to just slap a photo of a boy on the cover of this book instead of having any ambiguity and confusion about it? And, you know, she was just really worried about pronouns and things like that because um, she didn't know, even though, the publishers that were interested seemed enthusiastic. It was that fear of, well, what are they going to do to my property? <laughs> yeah. Me. You know, it's, um, authors have a 
tend to have a different vision when it comes to covers than publishers do. Um, and it's really kind of hard to meet in the middle because the publishers are thinking about marketability and how they're going to capture a reader's attention, whereas an author's view is more of, you know, the vision that they have in their head. And sometimes, you know, as an author, you aren't thinking about the marketing side of it. So, you know, sometimes that's when it's good to have a publisher who's thinking along those lines. But, you know, it can get really kind of combative when you're, you know, I've had author friends who've, you know, basically argued and really had fallings out with their publishers over covers. So covers are real kind of a touchy subject. Right. And, um, and the reason that uh, professional work, you, you know, requires usually a lot of money is because everything goes into that layout, the spine, you know, what's it going to look like on the shelf? Um, I'm in the comics industry, too. And so one of the things that they talk about is the, the design of the spines for the the bigger comic collections, because you want to see you know, that the Marvel logo is all in the same place and you want to see that the the font is readable from a certain distance. Oh, exactly. So now are your are your books also available in paperback or are they electronic only? Uh, I'm in the process of getting them all into paperback. I think um, the ones that I'm self-publishing, I think there's just um, one book right now that isn't in paperback, but they're all in um, digital um, and then the Paris Secret was um, it had a, a limited edition paperback um, put out probably a couple of years ago, but it's it's now strictly audiobook and um, ebook. Okay, how did you go about and get an audio recording for that? Um, well, my publisher um, sold the rights okay. to Audible. Okay. So, yeah, they were responsible. Yeah, I realized that because um, I use Kindle Direct and I realized that they have an option now where you can um, upload your own audio recording. Yeah, they have, um, it's called ACX. And right. um, I actually, not too long ago, probably just back, back in January, my very first book, The Company You Keep in my Kendra Clayton series, I um, produced did a um, audiobook version of it through ACX, and I found a wonderful narrator. Um, the book actually got picked um, by Audible for what's called their stipend program, and that's where they um, they pick books that they think will do do well in the audio market, and then they offer a stipend to attract. Um, uh, experienced narrators to um, pick up your book and, and narrate it. And I think it's like they get like $100 an hour for every recorded hour that they do. So, you know, I went from having no one auditioning for my audio book to having just all these people all at once wanting to narrate it. And that was that was a pretty cool experience. And I got a really great narrator. Her name is Janina Edwards. And um, she did an excellent job, so I'm really happy with the way the audiobook turned out. Were you actually involved in the audition process? 
I got you. Yeah, I got to choose. You know, they would send me. I had a script uploaded to the ACX site and narrators would um, audition and send me, you know, the recording and I got to pick pick from that. That's really cool. I didn't realize um, what kind of input or control or anything an author had at that point. Um, do you do anything like um, in your marketing for, for the books? Do you do things like book trailers? Because I, I see a lot of authors on Twitter asking if it's worth making a little video trailer. Um, I put together one. Um, there's a site called Animoto, and it's really affordable. And it's it's kind of just a jazzed up slideshow, and you can put music to it. And I did that for my book, The Paris Secret. And um, I really liked the way it turned out. Um and then I have one that I kind of spent a, a little bit of money on for um, Labyrinth Society, the kids' book that I wrote, and I really like the way um, that one turned out, too. It's kind of hard to say if they're worth it or not. Um, I've seen on YouTube book trailers with, you know, thousands of hits, you know, because, you know, it's just basically like a commercial for your book. And then I've seen some with, you know, 50 or 60 views. I mean, it's just kind of hard to say what's going to take off and, and really, really do well and, and what's not. It's it's kind of up in the air to me as to whether they um, are effective or not. Yeah, I'm not sure what kind of um, gauge you can have, uh, you know, the time that's put into it and if you had any expenses to make it and, and you know, if you get any return on any of that investment. I don't know how there's, it's possible to track it unless you know directly what website somebody clicked a link through here and then here and then here. I don't know. Yeah, I know. I've, I've picked up a couple of books because I saw the trailer. I mean, but, you know, I don't, it, it's just hard to know. It really is. And, you know, I think they, they could probably be, authors could probably, and publishers could probably be doing more with the trailers. You know, I don't know if, if any of them ever get shown in movie theaters or, or, or what, but I think we could probably be doing more with them. Yeah. It seems like you have to be already huge. Like James Patterson has commercials, you know, Um, but I've seen it, it basically come up more because of crowdfunding places like Kickstarter. Uh, you have to upload a video or I guess it's just highly recommended. It's kind of standard to do right. it. And so I, I see a lot of people that where, you know, a portion of their video is them speaking about who they are. But then sometimes I've seen where it's just a straight up trailer. So have you done any crowdfunding? No, I haven't. I haven't. Um, I had kind of thought about maybe doing it for my most recent Kendra book but you know like you said it's it's a little more it's a lot more affordable self-publishing than it used to be especially if you go through like Amazon you know you upload it to Kindle and you do the paperback and create space it's it's very affordable so I might you know I still might in the future but not I'm not really planning on it right now yeah, from what I understand, running a, a crowdfunding campaign is a full-time job. You know, for that month, you are doing nothing else but, but business. You're not doing anything creative right, at all. Right, right. And I've I've heard some kind of horror stories about ones that have gone wrong. So, you know, you kind of have to keep yeah. it all in perspective and, yeah. 
So let's talk about uh, the Kendra Clayton and the Xavier Knight series. How are they different? Well, um, my Kendra series takes place in a small fictional town in Ohio. Um, my main character, Kendra Clayton, is a young 20-something African-American teacher. And um, she's been kind of described as the African-American Stephanie Plum. I don't, are you familiar with Janet Ivanovich's Stephanie Plum series? Um, yeah, so she's kind of been described as, um, the African-American Stephanie Plum. And, um, it, it, it's a fun series to write. You know, I get a lot of, um, positive feedback, um, especially, um, I think I found tapped into a whole new readership because the fifth book in the series is, is free on Wattpad. And, um, yet every day I'm getting, emails from readers who've read it on Wattpad and then they ask me, you know, are there other books in the series or are you going to write more Kendra books? And um, so that's, and it's, it's considered kind of a cozy mystery series. Um, Xavier Knight uh, is a fallen angel who works as a detective in New Orleans. He's the first, this is the first book I've written with a male protagonist. So it was also a fun series to write because I love New Orleans. Um, so it's, um, he's got a whole, there's a whole cast of characters, um, otherworldly supernatural characters in that book. Whereas my Kendra series is just firmly rooted in reality. So two completely different types of mysteries. Okay, so there's there's no crossover potential there. No. no. <laughs> um, have you considered ad- adapting any of them into any other kind of medium, like um, taking them to? Well, I mean, you do have the audiobook versions, but um, for things, but uh, any adaptations into you know trying to pitch this to Hollywood or to get Um, comics made? I would love to see these, you know, either TV series or movies. I think they probably work better as TV series um, or even web series. You know, I would love to do a web series for my Kendra books. Um, And, you know, it gives me a lot of hope that um, some of the most, a couple of the most popular TV shows um, that are out right now are featuring African-American characters. You know, you've got Empire, You've got Scandal, um, How to Get Away with Murder, and that just really make, gives me a lot of hope that there will be more of those types of programs with, you know, featuring African-American characters. So, you know, I'm really hoping to see my books on at least the small screen or the computer screen or whatever. I'd, I'd love that. That would be really exciting. But yeah, those are the the shows that I'm addicted to. I, you know, I love Cookie Line. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I really, I just, I went into that show with no expectations for, for Empire because I'm like, well, it's not really the music I listen to at all. But I got so addicted the, the second I saw Cookie. Yeah. And I, I heard that, you know, Empire is smashing ratings records. And, oh, you know, yeah. I'm really hoping that that, you know, shows the powers that be that there is a market, a huge market for um, series with African-American characters. So, you know, I'm hoping that, you know, 
people will sit up and take notice and start putting out more of these kinds of, of shows. And they're all extremely powerful women who are flawed like the Viola Davis's character, Annalise Keating, in How to Get Away with Murder, talk about a painful, painful character history. And she's so remarkable. Well, you know, perfect characters are boring. I mean, all the best characters are the deeply flawed, deeply flawed ones. I mean, I mean, that's just life. No one's perfect. What kind of uh, personality does Kendra Clayton have? Uh, Kendra is what I would like to call the girl next door with an edge. You know, she's, she's fearless. She's gutsy. She's loyal to her friends and family. I mean, she'd do anything for a friend. Um, smart, but on the flip side, she's sarcastic and nosy and impulsive. And that gets her into a lot of trouble. So. And is there any romance life for her? Yeah. Yeah, and there's definitely romance there. Um, actually, there's a bit of a love triangle going on. Not, you know, not a heavy love triangle, but she's got a couple of men that, you know, are interested in her and that she's kind of torn between, so. Okay, so she's uh, got all kinds of things going on. So the mysteries that she comes across um, are they, you mentioned that she was a school teacher. Um, so how does she have mysteries in a small town? It's that sort of Cabot Cove syndrome of how many mysteries can you have in Cabot Cove? Um, well, she, she's an English instructor with the GED program. And then she, she hostess, she's a part-time restaurant hostess. She has an uncle that owns a restaurant in her town. So, you know, between those two jobs, there's plenty, she meets plenty of, of people who manage to pull her into their, their drama. Um, She's um, at, at the mysteries kind of follow a bit of a formula where I start the prologue usually has is where the murder takes place or a murder takes place. And then the, the rest of the book is kind of revolving around what happens in the prologue. OK, I, I wanted to ask you about uh, structure, what kind of structure you follow. So it sounds like you've almost got a little bit of the Columbo thing yeah. where <laughs> You see that crime right away, and then it's an hour and a half of him trying to figure it out. Right. Um, because I, uh, the the, mo the most criticism that I get in any of my work is that I don't have my action, uh, you know, soon enough. So the last two mysteries that I read, I actually charted out where because I was reading them digitally, so I don't know page numbers, but um, I, I charted out where crimes were taking place, and it was like. 42%, 46%, 48 percent. Um, so I went back to my own manuscript and I'm like right on target with these other books that I really enjoyed. So it's like, hmm, okay. So if the people that have been beta reading for me think my action is too slow, how do I explain and not be defensive and say, yeah, but the stuff I read does this. Yeah, I try and have it ha happen uh no later than the second chapter. Um, I think I might have one book where it happened a little further into the book, but um, yeah, it's, um, you know, and the thing about beta readers, you know, I know people swear by beta readers. Um, I've never used them because it's just not kind of part of my process, but it's like, you know what you're trying to do 
and sometimes the beta reader may not see may not see that so i don't know it's kind of kind of up in the air to me about whether beta readers would really work for me i mean do you find them helpful um I do because it gives me things to think about, but yet I, I find myself having this, you know, the disagreements and feeling really defensive. Yeah. Um, of when they, you know, they like, there's one woman uh, who's helping actually edit. She's going through and like helping me with all my typos and, you know, stuff like that. So that's extraordinarily helpful because I'm terrible at typing. Um, but as far as like just a, a beta read through, I yeah I'm having I'm having a struggle with that. Yeah, and it's it's so it, yeah it's really hard for me because you've got so many people who've got you know opinions about you know and different opinions because you know you write the book and you know if you have a literary agent you send it to her or if you have beta readers you send it to them so then you've got your beta reader's opinions, then you've got your agent's opinion, then you have your editor's opinion. And it's like, who do you listen to? I mean, it's it's really hard, you know? I mean, I, at least I would find it hard. Did you, um, the way that you use Wattpad, were you using any of that feedback as like a beta read? Or was that finished product? No, that you? was, um, there's probably typos in there and stuff. I mean, as far as like, it being edited for grammar and stuff. No, it probably wasn't when I put it up there, but no, I wasn't really looking for feedback. I was just kind of wanting to um, introduce more readers to the series. And it's, I was actually approached by someone at Wattpad, one of the marketing people um, came to me and said, would you like to be in our, our, they have an author program where they will promote, the book that you put on there. The deal is you have to make it available for free for six months to participate in the author program, but it's a really excellent program. And I got a lot of exposure through that. So, you know, Wattpad has been great for me as an author because I found I've tapped into a whole new source of readers through that. When you do that, um, is that something that you need, um, is that just your self-published work, or do you need like permission from your publisher? How are, how are you working on that? Um, that book was self-published, so I didn't need any permission. I've noticed that um, publishers are posting excerpts of books on Wattpad, not the whole things, but, you know, excerpts. So, no, personally, I didn't have to have permission, but I, I can't see a publisher allowing, except if maybe it was a first book in a series and they were wanting to get more attention for the other books. They might allow you to put a book up there for free, but, you know, that's kind of the trade-off. You have to put it up there for free. I think that um, my book has been up there for, I've just never pulled it. It was only supposed to be for six months, but, you know, I had such positive feedback, I just left it up there. Okay. And, um, because I, like I said, that's how I discovered you. So have you made any discoveries um of you know find authors that you you like because of that yeah i've discovered um there was an author named liliana hart who who has books posted on on wattpad and there's another author i can't remember what her name is but she kind of has a um series with the 
a girl who's a, a medium, psychic medium, and I think the books are set in England in the, during the 18th century. I can't remember what her name is, but yeah, I've discovered some some good authors through Wattpad. I mean, it's not just kids. I mean, yeah, it is a lot of um, teenagers, you know, ex- experimenting with their writing, and and that's great. But there's also um, a lot of adult authors as well. So, um, when you um, were in the process for querying to get your agent. How did, you know, was it because of something like Wattpad that you found agents or, or one of the other boards? I know that there's, there's a couple board systems out there. Okay. I'm actually on my third literary agent. Um, okay. I got my first one probably, oh, it's probably been 10, 15 years ago. There's, and the way I got my very first agent was, there's a book called The Literary Marketplace. It's a big, thick book, um, and they have it at most public libraries, um, probably in the reference section. So if you're looking for it, just go to your library and ask your reference librarian. And in it, they it's a directory that lists agents, literary agents, the kind of books they represent, um, what they want, whether they want just you to send them a query letter or if they want a query letter and sample chapters. And... Um, you know, their contact information. So I went through that book and I made a list, I think, of 12 literary agents that represented mysteries. And I just wrote them letters. That was back before, you know, people were accepting things through email. Um, so I made a list and I, I sent my letters and my sample chapters out. And I was lucky enough to find an agent in that first batch. Um, and she... She shopped my very first book, the first book in the Kendra Clayton series, and she shopped it for a year and a half. And we had one editor who really was interested in it, and then she left. And we could never get a yes or no from her replacement. And then my agent and I kind of parted ways. So then I started sending, you know, I started shopping the book on my own and found a publisher for it. So I had a deal on the table. So that's how I found my second literary agent. Um, He negotiated that deal for me. And then he represented me for a long time. And uh, then we, we kind of parted ways, you know, and it was all amicable. It wasn't, you know, there weren't any, there was no drama. It's just how it happened. And then, you know, I wrote my first kid's book and needed an agent. And that was probably the hardest agent search I did I probably queried a hundred agents and got probably 80 rejections of the agents that that got back to me some of them don't you know if they're not interested they just won't contact you back but then I found um, the agent that I'm represented by now in that process but it was a long hard process I mean 80 rejections that's kind of soul crushing I mean it was really not a fun time so but I did end up with my third agent through that but at least you got the rejection yeah (laughs) yeah I hate not knowing that would drive me even even crazier um do you find that that most of them had a like what do you consider a reasonable turnaround to get the rejection or approval 
Um, some of them were as quick as um, I had a couple that like responded to me within hours and, you know, wanted to see it. And then, you know, ultimately it didn't work for the book, didn't work for them. And then I have um, some that never got back to me. And usually I would say typically it would take uh, four, anywhere from four to six weeks for them to respond. Okay. Yeah, because I, I, I don't, um, I've only ever queried once and it was um, it years ago. What, you know, they have. You know, I actually had an agent who took two years to get back to me, <laughs> and by, well, by, yeah. by then I had already accepted a contract for the book from, from some someplace else, but yeah, it took her two years to get back to me. Wow. Yeah, I only, um, I only ever did it once, and I didn't know what what was typical. Like, are you supposed to send them out? all that one time or are you supposed to wait for one to get back to you before you send it to somebody else? Well, you know, it all depends on what their guidelines are. Some of them want, um, they don't want to look at something that someone else is looking at. So, um, you have to really pay attention to your submission guidelines. Some of them only want you to send them an email and if they're interested, they'll ask for sample chapters. Some of them want the whole book, you know, you just, you send it as an attachment and it, it's just so different from when I first started because when I first started you did everything through snail mail yeah and, that's what I and do. you know now everything is done through email and your your agent could be anywhere you know it used to be all literary agents were in New York you know now they can be anywhere my agent right now is um in Pennsylvania so you know, email and the internet has just changed everything as far as the way publishing works. Um, I, I find that I discover people, like I said, through Twitter, uh, you know, doing following hashtags. There are some really key hashtags um, like am writing, am editing, ask agent. That's a good one to look up and then you can find agents. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and at least start following them. And, and then, like you said, their websites will tell very specifically what their guides are. Yeah, that can also be a double-edged sword because usually when I've um, submitted something to someone, I start Twitter stalking them. <laughs> so then yeah. they start talking about things that they're reading that they're really excited about. And then you're like, oh, could that be, you know, what I sent them? Or they'll talk about some, you know, colossal mistake that somebody made. And then you're thinking, oh, did I do that? I mean, it can kind of be um, not a good thing too, but right, right. Well, I've um, I, I've caught a couple glimpses at at the hashtags ten queries and pit mad. Pit mad stands for pitch madness. Mm-hmm. Um, so ten queries is much more uh, straight up. It's it's the agents going through their pile and they'll put you know like query one describe it briefly and then say um, why they would say yes or no to see more. And uh, and a lot of it has like, you know, things you brought up, you can't follow the guidelines or not my genre Um, or, you know, interesting premise, but characters sound flat, something like that. Or sometimes it's just um, they, they send it to the wrong person. You know, a lot of people just, you're supposed to tailor your query to each agent and, right, you know, right. sometimes people just send out mass letters and they forget to change 
you know, the name, dear Mr. So-and-so, or they're sending um, something that was obviously sent for, you know, you have to be really careful when you're sending out queries that you're addressing it to the right person, you know, to the right sex, you know, you don't, if someone's got a kind of ambiguous name, you want to not call them sir if they're a ma'am or, I mean, you know, just stuff like that. People can be really sloppy. Yeah, I saw I saw an agent mention that too. He's like, my name is right there on the website. You know, you don't need dear agent. Like, right. Dear agent. <laughs> yeah, there's no excuse for that. You were talking about how you stage your plot structure so that you have your crime take place like up front. So when it comes to getting to know your character, how much backstory do you, do people get and how much do you sort of keep off in your own files of notes, like your own character Bible? Um, well, I try not to overload <clears throat> Because one of the things I found, like, you know, negative reviews that I've gotten, some of them have complained about um, info dump. Um, So I try not to overload the reader with backstory. I try and weave it into the narrative so I'm not giving them a glut of of backstory, you know, when I introduce a character. Because I found that readers don't like that. So I kind of try and you know I may have a whole uh, character thing written out because um, I, I do um, outlining I'm not a I'm a a plotter I'm not a pantser so I have to outline everything before I start writing and you know the reader may not get everything that I've put down for a character that's just kind of in my head so I can I can write them but I try really try not to overload the reader with backstory just, you know, reveal enough that it's relevant to the story. Do you find it more difficult because you're writing in a series? Um, Do you have to revisit things if somebody, for example, is not, you had had books like one through three were not available for a while. Do you, so do you find that you're working on book six, that you have to uh, revisit like who they are and how they got to that point in their lives? Uh, not a lot. I might put a sentence or two about, you know, how Kendra knows this person or what her history is with them, but I don't. I like to try and make the book so that if you've never read, like, the first two, you could jump in on book three and not be confused. Okay, yeah, because that's one of the things that I, I know. It's one of the series I enjoy a lot does have that info dump of, of you know, she kind of waits until like the second chapter, mm-hmm. and she writes in first person point of view. So it's even like, okay, so here I am. I I own this uh, this store, and this is my best friend, and I am got married two years ago, whatever. So there's always like one page that's a big info dump. Um, I find it sometimes it's helpful if I if I haven't gone through um, like if I haven't read the series in a while. Mm-hmm. Um, but it it definitely has that info dump feeling. Well, you know, another thing about writing a series is it's getting, you know, especially since um, Kendra is not uh, a de- police detective. She's not a, a lawyer. I mean, people who would have careers that would put them uh, 
in the middle of a crime on a regular basis. So she's a teacher, so it's getting really hard to kind of find ways to get her involved in the mystery. Um, because, you know, I don't want Cabot Cove syndrome where every place she goes, there's a dead body. So, yeah, it's, you know, getting kind of hard to figure out ways to keep involving her in all of these these mysteries. Do you, um, is it always like a murder or do you have other kinds of crimes like oh. theft and kidnapping and anything um, like that? Yeah, I've had some kidnappings, but, you know, the murder is always kind of the central part of it, so... Now with um, with cozies, uh, I I tend to network a lot and I end up noir people, and their books are just graphic. <laughs> and I'm like, and yet I've seen I've seen some criticism where somebody was like, you know, the cozies I just can't take them seriously. They they make the murder um, sound too light, and it's a very serious subject. And I'm like, I don't know, like I just can't. I have that much graphic violence in my brain. Um, you know, it, it kind of frightens me how much I do. Um, <laughs> some of the scenes that I've written, especially for the Xavier Knight series, um, they're they're kind of graphic. So um, I try not to make them gratuitous. You know, you know, gr- violence just for the sake of violence. I try and just make it inter- integral to the the plot. So it's not like I'm just throwing violence and and murder in there just for the heck of it, just to make it shocking. It has to work within the storyline. So that's how I kind of justify making something kind of graphic. It has to fit. You know, it has to have a purpose. It has to move the plot forward. Right. Do you have uh, sex scenes that you have to struggle with, uh, with how much you... Is it just they walked in and closed the door? Or? Um, there's not graphic sex in the Xavier series or the Kendra series. There was graphic sex in the Paris Secret. Because it was a romance. So. Well, it was, yeah, it was kind of a romantic thriller. It's probably more thriller than romance. But, yeah, there was graphic sex in there. Yeah, yeah. Well, a Division of Harlequin, I, I expect it there. yeah. Yeah, and those were interesting scenes to write because, you know, I don't I write mysteries, so I don't really write those kinds of scenes. So it was kind of like, is this too much or is this not enough? Or so I guess it ended up OK. So um, a couple of questions before I let you get back to your uh, your life of writing over there. Um, so what what do you do for surrounding characters? Do you have each, uh, like Xavier and Kendra, do they each have like a sidekick or best friend or something? Xavier's an angel, so I don't, I don't but he's a detective. So um, does he hang out with a journalist or something? Well, he lives with, um, he lives with a, a cat shifter, but she's not like his sidekick. He he ends up getting a sidekick. This is kind of the, the first book that kind of introduces him and kind of sets up, you know, his his side characters and the people who he's going to depend on throughout the series. Kendra kind of is alone. I mean, she's got friends and she's um, but mostly she's she's by herself because everyone else is kind of like, why are you getting involved in this? You need to go sit down somewhere. So she's mostly by herself. She doesn't really have a sidekick or anything. Okay. So then to uh, 
get to know you and to get to know your material. Do you go to any conventions like expos or festivals? I used to. I don't really anymore since I started self-publishing because it's kind of, you know, there were um, some things that I was participating in as a traditionally published author. Um, I'm finding it difficult to kind of get into that as a self-published author because I, I have books that are print on demand and bookstores don't really like to deal with those books. So it's kind of hard to go to those kinds of things when you have booksellers that don't really want to deal with your books. So I don't really do a whole lot of that anymore. I'd like to get back into conventions and things, but I just haven't done any lately. In your day job with the library, do you have to go to anything like Book Expo America? Um, I go to, um, they have a big library convention, um, every year in a different city and I've been to a couple of those so yeah there's there's library conventions because libraries are are definitely an author's friend um, probably right. to a certain extent more so than bookstores because um, bookstores your your book is going to have a limited shelf life unless it's, unless it's selling a whole lot of copies you know you might get maybe a month or six weeks of your book being shelved and then, you know, if it's not selling, they'll pack it up and send it back to your publisher and make way for the, the new releases. But, you know, with the library, you know, they buy multiple copies and, you know, it's it's on their shelf for quite a while. You know, it's not like they don't get rid of books too, but your book is probably going to have more shelf life in a library than it would be in a bookstore. Well, what's the 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 community like in Springfield, Ohio. I imagine it sounds like a kind of a big suburb kind of a city to me. It's about sixty thousand people. Um, it's a it's a small city. Um, they've been very supportive, especially the local newspaper um, is very supportive of local authors. So it's been great. the The library here has been great. My job, um, my coworkers, you know, I sometimes have a problem tooting my own horn but they'll tell anybody and, and everybody that I'm an author and they that someone should check out my book so everyone here has been super supportive I couldn't ask for more support that sounds great so do you still have independent bookstores out there or is it all you know we used to have two bookstores probably about 10 years ago we have no bookstores in Springfield oh, yeah no. we have to go to the surrounding cities um, there's a books and company in Dayton, and there's Barnes and Nobles like in Columbus because Springfield is situated like almost halfway between Columbus, Ohio, and Dayton, Ohio. So we have to, if we want to go to a bookstore, we have to go out of town. Uh, I'm in a weird small town place, so I have to drive a half an hour to be anywhere anyway. Um, but there is a small town that has a very small store near me, and then. Um, there actually is a really cool small bookstore near the comic shop that I go to and work out of. Yeah, I've, I've been waiting, you know, for years for, the, for us to get another bookstore, and they keep saying that we're going to get one, and it hasn't happened yet. So, yeah, I really missed having bookstores here. Yeah, but like you said, the digital world has at least opened it up for authors and for readers, too. So now people who don't have books can hear them. Oh, definitely. Definitely. You know, comic stores are closing all the time, too. And uh, that's one of 
the advantages of digital buying is I've, I've seen a lot of people say, I don't have a store anymore. Yeah, I get probably all of my books from Amazon now. I mean, and, and you can't beat the convenience also. I mean, I love browsing through bookstores and just getting lost in a bookstore. But if I want something quick, you know, it's just easier just to go online and get it. Well, my website is AngelaHenry.com. And then um, if you go to my website, then it has links to my Twitter and my Facebook and here's the part of the conversation where my whole side of the conversation got completely garbled with the, the static and the feedback and everything that I was struggling with. So um, thank you once again to Angela Henry for spending an hour talking about writing mysteries and fantasy novels because it was a great opportunity for me to talk to somebody like her and to hear about her experiences with Wattpad and her querying experiences and ending up on her third agent. There's a lot of great information in this episode. So go look up AngelaHenry.com to get uh, her other social media information. And don't forget that you can sponsor the show by going to Patreon.com slash Amber Unmasked. You can always follow me at Elizabeth Amber on Twitter and everything else is at AmberUnmasked.com. Thanks for listening, everybody. Cheers.